Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we come back to this very compelling passage dealing with the doubts of John the Baptist, or as one writer said, doubts from the dungeon, doubts from John's trial when he had been locked away now for, uh, for probably about two years in a forgotten dark dungeon. It's a perplexing thing when people grapple with doubts, when they find themselves seized by them, sometimes from nowhere, sometimes from difficult circumstances, they can really struggle. They can equally struggle whenever they find that maybe a celebrated hero doubts. Someone that they thought was beyond doubting, someone who they thought would never struggle with these kinds of things, and then they see their, their hero struggling, they see their, their spiritual icon struggling, it leaves them with all kinds of perplexity, all kinds of questions. This would have especially been the case with John the Baptist. People who knew John, sat under his ministry, probably would have told you he is the last person they would have expected to struggle with doubt. So when a few of his disciples arrive to the crowds listening to Jesus and they bring with them questions from John, are you the expected one? Are you the one we were been talking about? Are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? When they hear those questions and they find out that they're coming from John, it would have raised all kinds of questions in their own mind. It would have left them perplexed. Jesus, of course, knows all this. He knows the dynamics. He knows what's going on with John and he knows what's, what's going on in the hearts of the people who are listening to them or to him. And so... As he gives assurances to the disciples of John, he performs some deeds that were confirming for John. He points them back to some scriptures that also would have been assuring to his own heart. He knows this whole episode needs to be addressed for those who are listening because now suddenly they've got questions in their minds about John, about his spiritual character about his level of understanding, about his level of commitment. And they may also have questions about their own commitment. They might begin to wonder, they might begin to waver about whether or not they themselves really ought to be holding to and clinging to this so tightly. John's stumbling may very well have led to their own stumbling. Jesus understands all of this. And so as his... Uh, He sends away the disciples of John. He turns to the crowds who've been listening to this whole episode, and he begins to address some things that he believes might be in their heart. Questions about John's character and John's greatness. And this is what he says in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. In verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is really a, this is really a statement of defense for John the Baptist, a statement of defense for his spiritual character and his greatness. And we can't forget the context in which it comes. This all comes as Jesus has sent his 12 apostles out to preach on their inaugural mission. And if there was anything that he's already told them about that whole ordeal, if you could sum sum it up in one way, uh, you might say it this way, that whatever he's sending them to do is not going to be easy. He told them back in chapter 10, verse 16, he was sending them out like sheep in the midst of wolves. They're going into a hostile environment. I'm sending you out to proclaim a message and you're going to be surrounded, he says, basically, by people who are eager to devour you even as you go. You're going to be surrounded by constant threats, by difficult situations, by things that could could not only discourage you, but upend you completely. In fact, in verse 17, he drops all the metaphor about sheep and wolves, and he just tells them very directly, beware of men. Beware of people. Beware of them because they're going to do all they can to silence you and destroy you. They're going to drag you into their synagogues if they're Jews or if they're Gentiles. They're going to drag you before their governors and their kings. They're going to falsely accuse you. They're going to try to do everything they can to stop you. And he wants it to be very clear as he sends out these preachers that they're going to have this kind of resistance, this kind of suffering. They're going to be resented. They're going to be hated. They're going to be opposed all because of the nature of the task of what they're doing. Because what they're doing is they're taking a light and they're shining it into a place where everyone wants darkness. They're taking truth and they're speaking it in the midst of lies, lies that people want to believe. They're taking God's message and marching it into the center of Satan's kingdom. So yes, of course, you're going to have struggles, you're going to have opposition, you're going to have a hostile reaction. All of this, you may remember, though, was the mark of their authenticity. Jesus tells them, if you're not willing to do this, if you don't want to take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to lay down your life in this way, you'll never really find life. If you're not willing to suffer in the way that the master suffered, then you can't be my slave. So in order to be an authentic disciple, an authentic slave, an authentic messenger, you've got to be prepared for this kind of suffering. Acceptance and prosperity and popularity are not going to follow you. It might be there if you're willing to affirm the world in its evil deeds, but those who are true servants of God have to prepare themselves for just the opposite. Now, that was what he told his disciples But as you move into chapter 11, there is no greater example of that than John. 
John lived that out. If they needed a if they needed a, 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 an object lesson of what to expect when they go out and preach, just look at this guy who has been locked away in prison for two years now for basically doing exactly what I'm asking you to go do. They might assume, though, that in light of these questions, they might assume the wrong things about John. They might assume that maybe John was himself not who they thought he was, that maybe his character wasn't the quality that they thought it was. And so Jesus takes a moment to defend John. He he takes a moment to defend his character and the issue of his willingness to suffer, almost as an extension of what he's told them already in chapter 10 about all of this suffering, all this the, the, the nature of true discipleship, he tries to help them to understand the true spiritual character and honestly the true greatness of John the Baptist. This was a man who ought to be measured not by these momentary doubts driven by pretty extreme circumstances. This was a man that ought to be measured by other things, the things that Jesus talks about here. In fact, there are two really important standards that Jesus highlights that he uses to measure John. Two incredible standards, really, that define greatness for any of God's servants. Two standards that define greatness for even you and me. Two standards that define greatness for every disciple, every servant of God. And Jesus talks about them in the context of John. First of all, John is measured by Christ according to his courage in calling for repentance. That's what he talks about in verse 7 through 10, his courage in calling for repentance. This is the first place that Jesus turns their heart and mind. For those who might have suspicions about who John is and his character and, and all of that, this is no indication, Jesus tells them, that John is somehow emotionally fragile or weak morally. Nothing could be further from the truth. If ever there was a man of unshakable conviction and courage, it was John the Baptist. He showed it again and again, willing to stand up to some of the most powerful, intimidating people in his society. I mean, he called out corrupt soldiers in the army who could take off his head. He confronted wealthy tax collectors who could have accused him and abused him all the way to the courthouse. He took on and confronted corrupt religious leaders who could have smeared his testimony and name. And he even confronted King Herod himself. And so Jesus reminds them of this when he asks them the simple question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed, a flimsy reed shaken by the wind? That's a reference to those really tall reeds that grow along the bank of the Jordan River. Some of them grow as high as 15 feet tall. And they're so tall and so thin that the slightest of breezes would bend them over one way or the other. It didn't take much force to blow them one way or the other. And while there may be some leaders and some preachers 
who are no better than those reeds easily blown about by public opinion, easily uh, swayed by intimidation tactics, easily turned around by threats of their, uh, toward their, to their personal comforts. None of that was John. You can find those kinds of leaders a dime a dozen, but this isn't John, you understand. He was no moral weakling. He demonstrated no interest, no priority in pursuing or guarding or protecting a life of ease and comfort or acceptance from the world. He was not easily bent. This man was, if anything, resolute, tenacious, uncompromising in his call for people to repent, to prepare their hearts for the message of salvation. And there weren't any subtleties, you may remember, when the religious hypocrites came to Jesus trying to garner favor from him and maybe elevate their status among the crowds, trying to participate in Jesus' baptism, he stopped them. In fact, he called them a brood of vipers. He asked them if they understood that there's a coming judgment for them, and he wondered if anyone's even ever warned them about it. That maybe somehow they're trying to manipulate the situation, trying to flee from that coming judgment. And then he told them that their words of repentance wouldn't be enough, that if they really wanted to, 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 to understand God, if they really wanted to have a relationship with God, if they really wanted to enter the kingdom, then they're going to have to have deeds. They're going to have to have a life that matches their words. God will not accept shallow repentance. There was no subtleties with John. He was stringent. Now listen, there's no question that a less direct approach would have probably garnered favor for John. He probably, because he had reached such a point of notoriety near the peak of his ministry, people were coming from all over the place, there probably would have been support even from the religious leaders who might have minor disagreements with him if he was just willing to tone down his message, if he was willing to give them some kind of flattering accolades, if he was doing a little bit more to acknowledge some of the prominent opinions or the opinions of their prominent rabbis, if he was willing to just make some compromises, and maybe that's why the religious leaders were coming to John in the first place. Coming down from Jerusalem all the way out to the Jordan River would have taken them a day or two to walk all the way down there. Maybe they were coming because they were hoping to co-opt him. They were hoping to mold him and manipulate him for their own agenda and for their own reputation, make him some sort of puppet to promote their own sort of uh, brand. But what they found was themselves unmasked and exposed by John's singular commitment to a message that the Lord had entrusted to him. A message of repentance. Jesus presses the point in verse 8. What, what did you go see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. In other words, John wasn't personally benefiting from any of this stuff. He wasn't... He wasn't out there doing this in order to increase his creature comforts. If anything, his whole message increased his hardships. 
He didn't enjoy the luxuries of soft clothing or palatial houses. You may remember John wore a rough garment of camel's hair tied around with a simple leather belt. In fact, that austere wardrobe was just another level that John embraced to try to get across his message. He was dressed like this as a part of his message. And by the way, he wasn't asking everyone to dress like this, but this was for him. Jesus himself didn't dress like this. In fact, uh, Jesus was criticized for being a, a glutton and a drunkard, maybe too comfortable and too friendly with the luxuries of this world. John wasn't like that, though. John lived an austere life, and he wore an austere wardrobe. Not that this defined his spirituality, but this did one thing very clearly. It put him in line with the Old Testament prophets, because this is the way they dressed. Hebrews 11.37 talks about among all those who are in the hall of faith were the prophets who, the writer says, went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. As a matter of fact, in Zechariah 13, when a group of false prophets stood up and they wanted to sort of gather a following for themselves, they wanted to deceive people, Zechariah tells us that they actually dressed themselves, they donned themselves in hairy cloaks. So they were going to try to, for a brief period of time, dress the part. Maybe more importantly, this was the dress of Elijah, John's prototype. He was described as wearing a garment of hair and a leather belt. So John was willing to shed all the soft clothing and shed all the luxurious garments in order to dress himself in a way that was fitting, in a way that accentuated and, and, and advanced and furthered his message. All of this really connecting, or I should say communicating, that John, just like every other faithful prophet, was utterly disconnected from the culture he, he was confronting the culture. He was not from the culture. He was disconnected, living out in the desert, unfamiliar with the ebbs and flows of society, a wild man whose lifestyle, whose message, and whose garb had no apparent attempt to be relevant to society at all. He wasn't defined by any of that stuff. The strength of John's ministry was not his fashion, and it wasn't his external material success. The strength of his ministry was his dedicated uh, uh, commitment and singular, crystal clear message of repentance. Which is what Jesus highlights in the third question. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. In other words, Jesus says, you want to understand John's ministry. This is the way you understand it right here. His job was to prepare people. Prepare them for what? 
Well, prepare them for the kingdom. Remember John, Matthew 3, verse 2, this was the summary of John's ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was all, he was all about the kingdom. That was what defined his life. His message was all about a kingdom, and it was a kingdom of heaven, which means that it wasn't a kingdom of this world. Now, don't confuse that. Some people have misunderstood that to mean that John was just talking about a uh, an immaterial kingdom, a spiritual or a figurative kingdom. That's not what he was talking about. He very much understood a kingdom that had a material manifestation, a kingdom that would overrule and dominate this world. Otherwise, the physical miracles of Jesus, the healing of bodies, the raising of the dead, none of that stuff would have been meaningful to John at all. He understood a kingdom that would transform the physical realities of this world and conform them to a brand new work that God would do. But more importantly, for John, this was a kingdom that wasn't from this world, meaning that it's not sinful, it's not corrupt, it isn't slanted towards the rich and the powerful, it's not weak, it's not temporary, it's not any of the things that you and I experience on almost a daily basis from our governments and our leaders and our kings and our princes. This is the kingdom that John was announcing, a kingdom that is heavenly at its very core. Because at its very core, it is all about righteousness and holiness and fellowship with God. Because this kingdom is primarily not focused on economic policies, external buildings, the amassing of weapons and armory. Its primary focus is the hearts of its citizens. And John came to tell people that if you have any hope of entering this kingdom when this kingdom arrives, if you have any hope of entering this kingdom, then you need a new heart. Then you need to repent. Because in order to enter Jesus' kingdom, you have to be willing to yield your heart to the king, to bow your mind, to bow your heart, to bow your affections to the king. If you're not willing to do that, you're not going to enter the kingdom. That was his simple message. And Jesus says that's, that's the way to define him. You want to understand John? Just understand that. Understand that he came, he had a job, he fulfilled his job to prepare the way. Well, all that leads us then to a second level or second standard of measurement, which is really more important than the first. Jesus goes on in verse 11 through 15 to talk about how John's greatness is measured by his clarity in pointing to Christ. His greatness is measured by his clarity in pointing to Christ. He says in verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there hasn't there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, this is unparalleled, literally unparalleled praise from Jesus. 
among those born of women, which pretty much covers everybody, right? Among every person ever born throughout the entire history of creation, every man, every woman, every servant, every disciple, every prophet, every preacher, every patriarch, every Gentile, every Jew, those who were living in obscurity and those who lived in pomp and splendor, those who sat on thrones and those who sat in the dust of despair. Everyone, when measured against John, every one of them fell short. Now, why is that? Why was John so great? Well, the answer is really in the second part of the verse. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So whatever the standard of measure is, there are those who are in the kingdom of heaven who are going to be greater than John. Well, what does that mean? Well, a lot of people think that he must be talking about those who died, those who go to heaven. In other words, they're better off than than we are here. They're greater in that sense. But that can't be the case because the kingdom that John's talking about hasn't arrived. Remember, he was preparing the way for it. His job was to get people ready for it. His job was to tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It hasn't arrived yet. He was sent ahead to announce its arrival, but he wasn't there in the kingdom yet. It was imminent, but it was still future. And so if you're thinking about entering into the kingdom in the future and saying that people who, are, uh, who have died and entered the kingdom in the future are greater than John, then that really can't work because John's going to be there too. I mean, John would be in the same kingdom. He's a believer. He's a disciple. So they can't be greater because he's also in the kingdom, at least at that point in the future. So he's not talking about people who've died. It's not necessarily talking about some sort of unique godliness either for those who might live in the post-resurrection world. That's the way some people read this. The kingdom arrives whenever Jesus ascends into heaven, and therefore all those who are left are filled with the Holy Spirit. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out. That's something unique. That's something that had never happened before, where every single believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, but that's what was promised by Christ. And as a result of that filling of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in a kind of sanctification and a kind of godliness. And so some people think, well, this is this just simply is a reference to this newfound capability that people have whenever the Spirit arrives. But you have to remember, John was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. He was the only Old Testament saint like that. He had continuous filling of the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life. So this isn't necessarily a reference to you and I and our capacity in the Spirit to walk out a godly life better than John. None of that is really what this is about. What this is really about, the actual measure of the greatness that Jesus is talking about, is the same measure he's already discussed in reference to John's role as a prophet. He's the greatest of the prophets. 
He isn't just a prophet. He says back in verse 9, he's more than a prophet. He's the greatest of prophets. Why? Because he was the one who was on the scene when Jesus arrived. He was the one who was sent directly before the arrival of the king to prepare the way. Meaning that he was the one who was able to point people to the Messiah and to the king with crystal clarity, with, a, with, with an unambiguous approach. All the other apo- uh, prophets you remember in John, excuse me, in First Peter chapter 1, they were the ones who were writing and talking about the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow, Peter says in First Peter 1.10. But they were still wondering about the manner of the, of the unfolding of these things and the timing of it. They still were kind of looking through a glass darkly, but John was different. Among all the prophets, he saw the arrival of the Messiah. And so he was the greatest, in that sense, the greatest prophet and the greatest born among women because no one equaled or rivaled him in pointing to Christ. John was greater because he could point to Christ with greater clarity. Now, here's the remarkable thing. There are people even greater than John, Jesus says. Who are they? The least in the kingdom of heaven. The least, the most simple, the most obscure, the most unnoticed person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Why? Not because they live out their, their, their walk with God in a more godly way, not because they're even more faithful on a day-to-day basis, but the singular reason that makes them either great or not great, the thing that defines their greatness is their ability to point to Christ. Your greatness, my greatness, is a function... And it is relative to our pointing with clarity to Jesus as the Savior of all men. You have to grasp what amazing truth that is. The least in the kingdom of heaven. The least in the kingdom of God. Meaning that you and I have a tremendous privilege a tremendous capacity, if we're willing to do what we've been called to do, a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous clarity to point to the identity of Jesus as the Savior of all mankind. That's true, by the way, primarily because of the resurrection when Jesus demonstrated his power over death He defeated death by coming from the grave and living again. And by defeating death, we know that death is a result of sin. Sin is what causes death. And so by defeating death, he demonstrates that he defeats sin. If he can defeat death, he can defeat sin. And if he can defeat sin, he can forgive sin. And if he can forgive sin, he is the savior of all the world. And so you and I, standing on this side of the resurrection, have even greater clarity than John the Baptist had. 
In other words, it would make some sense for John, even in the darkness of his dungeon and prison, to still have remaining questions. It doesn't make sense so much for you and I. We have so much clarity. And then you add on top of the, resur- uh, the resurrection, you add on top of that the scripture, the word of God, the testimony of the apostles, the New Testament, all of that clarity that's been given to us. We have opportunity for greatness, greatness that goes beyond even John's. Again, not because of your personal devotion, not because of your personal performance. That's the way that you and I tend to think about greatness. That's the way we tend to measure men and women. We measure them based on how well we think that they conform to some religious expectation, some religious standard. Jesus says, I measure them based on how clearly they point other people to me. Greatness is measured by your willingness to point Jesus as the Savior, point to Jesus as the Savior of all mankind. Your willingness to declare His glory, your willingness to declare His kingdom, your willingness to call people to repent, your willingness to acknowledge Him as King, your willingness to tell others they need to be saved, your willingness to point people to Jesus, that defines your greatness. And your unwillingness, well, that just reveals your character. It may reveal that you're not a disciple at all. By the way, your greatness isn't measured even by their response. You understand? I mean, John, John's ministry was in many ways an obscure ministry. I mean, he went out in the desert. You had to go find him. People had to trek out through the sand, all the rocks and hills to find him on the banks of the Jordan River. And though he preached over and over again, many of them who responded, responded only temporally, shallowly, because in the end they weren't ready for the Messiah. But you see, it wasn't the response of John's ministry. It wasn't even the scope of John's ministry. It was a brief two-year period. It was the clarity. I mean, you could find others. You could find Elijah, who had an expansive, years-long ministry. You could talk about the kings, the faithful kings of Israel, whose lives touched almost every person in Judah and in, and in Israel, you could talk about Abraham who spawned, uh, you know, the whole nation of Israel and everyone knows his name. You could talk about all those people, but greatness isn't defined by scope and it's not defined by response. It's defined by one thing. It's defined by the clarity with which you point to Christ. Now, while that is a tremendous opportunity for you and me, while that is a tremendous privilege for you and me, Jesus wants us to know that when we do that, we shouldn't expect the pathway to be any easier than John's. This is point in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. It's a little bit of an enigmatic 
statement for a couple of reasons, but if you just read it in its whole, you understand it's talking about violence, right? I mean, the word violent is pretty plain. It just simply refers to the exertion of force for the, order, for the, for the sake of creating harm or damage. And there's a couple of ways that people have understood this. In one sense, they just note that the word in, uh, in the Greek is in a passive form. And so it's talking about the kingdom passively receiving violence from violent people, which explains John's dilemma. John was one of the ones who suffered violence. He went out and he tried to preach to others about Christ and he suffered violence and violent men seized him just like they try to seize every messenger of God. They try to silence every messenger of God. And so this is just simply an explanation of that. And that's true. I mean, that would be an accurate way of describing the advance of the kingdom. Others, however, have, have tried to reconcile this not only with other sayings, particularly in Luke chapter 7, but even with verse 13 and 14. And they have noted that the passive form of this verb could also be a middle deponent in Greek, which basically is another way of saying that the kingdom is not receiving the violence, but the kingdom is carrying it out. The kingdom itself is violent. That is to say that it is creating a forceful, uh, in some cases, a negative view by some people. It is viewed as threatening. It is viewed as brutal. It is viewed as vicious. Why? Because it's confronting sin, because it's calling people to repentance. And Jesus might be implying this in the rest of the verse when he goes on to say, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That is to say that John fulfills a role that was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 that was like Elijah. Malachi 4 actually says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi envisioned this Elijah-like figure who was going to come, and what was he going to do? He was going to announce the coming destruction. He was going to announce the awesome day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, the day of God's vengeance. And John fulfilled that prophecy, he says. If you'll accept it, this is who John was. He was coming and he was on the scene and he was making bold statements, speaking just like Elijah did in times of utter darkness, in times of complete compromise, calling Israel back to faithfulness. His was a ministry of confrontation. His was a ministry of warning. His was a ministry that was perceived by many people as an affront, a, a, an offensive message. And in that way, the kingdom ever since the time of John has been advancing violently. And there are violent men who are opposed to it. 
And Jesus is telling us that this is what happens. This is what happens whenever you pursue this kind of greatness. You want to be great? There's a way to be great. Tell people of Christ. You want to be great? Just be clear. Be as clear as John was clear. That there's a spiritual kingdom, there's a heavenly kingdom, there's a godly kingdom, and the only way to get into that kingdom is for you yourself to be born again, to have a new heart, to be made like the heavenly beings. The only way for you to enter into that is for you to repent. And the only way that you're ever going to be able to have the forgiveness of your sins, the only way you're ever going to experience this forgiveness and this repentance is for you to cling to Christ. You just be super clear like that. But just understand everything Jesus has said up to this point. People will violently attack you. Everything he said in John, uh, Matthew 10 is true. They will attack the message, and they will attack the messengers. They will seek to seize you, to overtake the kingdom, to arrest, if you will, this force that's coming against them. In fact, there's probably a direct correlation between the clarity with which you speak to other people and the violence with which they respond. The more clear you are, the more you can expect a violent reaction. The more you tone it down and dial it back, the more accommodating the world will probably be. It's just not a recipe for greatness. John, John was suffering. John was a victim but he was a victim of his own faithfulness. Nobody wants to be a victim. Nobody wants to suffer. And they certainly don't want to be a victim of something they've done to themselves. But that's exactly what John was. He was a victim of his own faithfulness. He brought this suffering on himself because of his greatness. There are a lot of people who are unwilling to believe any of this, to receive any of this. Why Jesus says at the very end, if you have ears to hear, then hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because he understands that most people won't. They won't listen to John. They won't listen to Jesus. They won't listen to his messengers. They won't listen to you. But he was okay with that. He was okay with that. He was okay because he understood that it's not their response that defines your faithfulness and it's not their response that defines your greatness. Greatness is directly, directly related to your relationship to Christ. First of all, knowing Him. Entering into his kingdom, meaning that you have come to confess that your heart has been rebellious against God. 
You enter his kingdom because you recognize that you have resisted his word, you've resisted his law, you've resisted his righteousness, and you have pursued your own way. You repent. You enter the kingdom and then you turn around and you start to tell others, this is the pathway of salvation. It's not complicated. But it is the true standard. That's true greatness. If you would want to pursue it. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and God is speaking to your heart. You hear these things and it's like it's the first time you've ever heard them. You're starting to understand what the gospel is. If God is working in your heart today, I encourage you, don't leave here without giving somebody a chance to hear. I pray that you would take the pathway of true greatness, that you would be glad to share with others what's going on inside. I'll be in our visitor reception when we're done here. I'd love to hear. There'd be others here. They would all love to hear. I pray that you would stop and tell someone how God is calling you out of your sin and darkness, deception and despair and calling you into the greatness of his kingdom. Father, we're grateful for this and thankful for the clarity of the gospel as it has come down to us. There is no excuse for us to have anything but a clear message of our Savior. He is the one who is to come. He is the one who defeated death. He is the one who overcame the sin that causes death. And He is the one who can wipe away our sins. We're so grateful to know Him and to know His gospel. And so grateful to be able to proclaim it. I pray that you would help us to do that with unvarnished clarity. Pursue true greatness with a clear proclamation of His glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.